A special welcome to those of you who are guests. Perhaps you received an invitation from one of our folks or you received our mailer that went out to, to the community inviting you to this series. We are thrilled that you could come and look at matters related to this topic that is always of great interest. How do I know it's always of great interest? Well, back uh, when I used to work a real job, before I became a pastor, I used to work with real people. They used to ask questions uh, about the Bible, and knowing that I was training to be a pastor, they would often ask me about questions related to the Bible, and often those questions related to end times events. Folks had heard about some of those end times events, some of the words associated with them, the Antichrist, Armageddon, 666, those kinds of things, and so I would often be asked questions about that. So I know that it is a, a topic of interest for that reason, but also sales of materials related to end times topics go through the roof. And of course, over the last uh, several years, a decade or more now, we've had the Left Behind series that has been very popular on the New York Times bestseller list because people have a keen interest in this topic of what's going to happen at the end. And that interest is also evidenced by the things that have happened over these last few weeks. The whole Herald Camping family radio prediction of yesterday as the end of the world. And as I told our folks during our first hour this morning, our scheduling of this series for today is really coincidental, though in God's program nothing is coincidental, but providential that uh, we are having this series the day after the end of the world was, was scheduled. We did not know that when we scheduled our 2011 series, but happily, uh, here we are. Now, some of the things that have happened over these last couple of weeks as that has gained momentum in the, the media have been both, I think, humorous and, and sad. Some of the humorous things that have happened over the last few weeks are that entrepreneurs have tried to make money off of people who thought they were going to be gone as of yesterday. And so maybe you saw some of these news stories, but there were people who were offering to feed your dog now, assuming you believe your dog's not going to go with you and you want your dog fed, there were people who were saying, we'll feed your dog. There were also people, of course, all of this is for a fee. There were people who were willing to send emails on your behalf, emails that you've prepared ahead of time to your unbelieving friends who have been left behind. Now, one of the, one of the problems, it seems to me, is am I going to trust somebody to fulfill their obligation if they were left behind? I don't think so. Is this guy really going to feed my dog or pass on my, uh, my emails? People often associate pastors falsely with a sort of priesthood. I have that happen with me a lot. Sometimes people refer to me as father. Uh, that's not my title. And the truth is I have no particular pipeline to God that you don't have if you know God through Jesus Christ. But people think that. And so they're relieved when I visit them at the hospital and I pray with them which I'm happy to do and have done with many of you because sometimes people think that my prayer has more going for it than the average guy. It doesn't, but nonetheless, that's what, uh, that's what is thought. And as it relates to this whole rapture issue and the end of the world yesterday, you know, a number of you saw other people around. You saw people around when you walked into church today, but several of you wanted to make sure I was still here. It wasn't enough that you saw your spouse this morning. 
And some of you actually told me that. Man, am I glad to see you. Now, let me say one other thing about all of that. Harold Camping, contrary to popular belief, is not a Baptist. And many of you probably thought he was. I know several people have told me they thought he was. He's not. There are a lot of wacky Baptists. A lot of really wacky Baptists. I've known that for a long time. If you've been in our circles for any length of time, you know that as well. So there are plenty of of wacky Baptists. But it has gotten to the point that anybody who is really weird, who is not a Muslim, is automatically concluded to be a Baptist. And Harold Camping is not a Baptist. The guy in Florida who was threatening to burn a Koran in front of the mosque in Dearborn, Terry Jones, is not a Baptist. Contrary to what many people have told me, he's not a Baptist. So Camping's not a Baptist. He has just got some very weird views and obviously wrong. This is the second time he has predicted the end of the world and been wrong. And these false prophets, the only thing sadder than the fact that they are false prophets is that they have nine lives, that they can be wrong and then can go on having people contribute to their ministry and then be wrong again and again and again. And so camping was wrong. Now, why was he, but why was he wrong? And here's the sad part. There's the humorous part, but then there's also the sad portion of what has happened over these last few weeks. And the very sad part is this, that Harold Camping, along with many other so-called teachers of God's word, use an interpretive approach to God's word that allows them to see anything they want in the Bible. And God did not give us scripture in order for us to play fast and loose with the way we interpret it. It is not okay for us to simply see anything we want in the Bible. It is sometimes said by well-meaning folks that you can get any interpretation you want out of the Bible. Perhaps you've heard that, perhaps you've said that. That is the case that people do get whatever they want out of the Bible. It is the case. But it is not the case that they can do that legitimately. You cannot legitimately get whatever you want out of the Bible. And so, when we go through this series together over these next eight weeks, we're going to be using an interpretive approach to the Bible that is simply called by scholars a normal approach to interpretation. That's the word that's actually used, normal. Meaning... The Bible speaks to us in human language the same way I'm speaking to you in human language. That every message you receive, whether the one I'm speaking right now, whether the conversation you had just before we started here, or what's communicated to us in the pages of Scripture, every message you receive has to be interpreted, but it's interpreted through the normal means of human language interpretation. It's set in a context, it takes into consideration figures of speech, and the Bible contemplates all of those. And so you are going to see, as we go through these eight weeks, what the Bible teaches us about what God says regarding the end times comes to us through normal human language interpreted through normal interpretation. Now, it does affect people's behavior when they believe the end time is is near. And that's been happening for a number of people over these last few weeks who believed that it was going to end yesterday, and that's modified their behavior. Some people 
went on cross-country trips so that they could see the country before they, before they left. I read these testimonies in the New York Times. Some people ran up their credit cards. I'm not sure how good that is, the unethical behavior of leech stiffing somebody else when you're going to be, you think you're going to be gone, but that's what, that's what some folks did. It does affect behavior. But it should affect behavior in a very ethical way. To think about the fact that the Bible teaches that God, in fact, is going to return. Christ is going to return. And the things that the Bible tells us are going to happen are, in fact, going to transpire as delineated in Scripture that ought to have a salutary effect upon us, such that our behavior is modified in an ethical, far from an unethical, way. This happened in the fifth book of your New Testament. Some of you are familiar with the layout of your New Testament, but the fifth book is the book of Acts. You have Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and then you have the Acts of the Apostles. And that's the beginning in the, in the book of Acts is the beginning of what we know as the church. And Jesus has accomplished his mission, having come to earth, having died for the sins of his people, having risen from the grave and ascended back to the Father, and then this fifth book begins to set forth Jesus' first followers spreading his message then in obedience to his final command. And people believe that message and they come to Christ and they are gathered at the beginning in Jerusalem. And the first, the very first church is in Jerusalem. 3,000 people come to Jesus on that very first day. But then you read in the next chapter, Acts chapter 4, and then into Acts chapter 5, and the numbers continue to increase, and the, and the number of converts in that church at Jerusalem swells, such that by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, they're having problems handling all of these people. Acts chapter 6 tells us about one of those problems. Now, why were all of these people, though, concentrated in Jerusalem? It's a question that people gloss over very easily as you read that narrative, that story. But one of the reasons all of those people were gathered in Jerusalem was because in the second chapter of that book, the book of Acts, it tells us that they had come for a feast, an annual feast called Pentecost that took place in Jerusalem. And then they heard the message of Jesus, and many of them were converted, but instead of after the feast going home, they stayed. And do you know why they stayed? Because they believed Jesus was returning. And they believed Jesus was returning quickly. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, it tells us they had all of their possessions in common. They shared everything they had, each one with the other. Why did they do that? Because Jesus was coming soon. They thought. Over time, they realized that Jesus had not given the time or the hour. They dispersed to their homes. The gospel message went forth. And here we are 2,000 years later, the beneficiaries of that message. But what you believe about the return of the Lord affects behavior. And in fact, as we're going to see in our notes in session one, it's designed to affect our behavior, but for good, ethically, rather than what some, of, some have done over the last few weeks in an unethical way. And so with that, please take a look at page one of your notes. In our series, What's the World Coming To? If you were to read the Bible, but do what many of us like to do with a book, we like to get right to the end and find out what happened, instead of having to trudge through all the other stuff. But if you did that with the Bible, as with most books, you'd probably be missing something. 
If you don't read the beginning, then you're not going to know why all the stuff that transpires at the end and in the middle is happening. So just think about taking the Bible and opening it toward the end without ever getting the beginning. And what you would read there in the very last book of the Bible, the 66th book of your Bible called Revelation, which is devoted to these things that are going to transpire at the end of time. And so now you're reading about all of these things, and there is mentioned the Antichrist and the beast and the the number of his name, the mark of the beast, and a number that amounts to 666. And you read about a time of tribulation, and you read about a false prophet, and you read about a kingdom, and you read about the return of, of Christ there, and all of those things, and you would be asking yourself, Logically, why is there an Armageddon and a big war going on here? And if you haven't read the beginning, you have no idea why any of that's taking place. Or, let's say, you don't just go to the end, but you go to the middle. And toward the middle, you find one who has come and who has claimed to be the Son of God, God having come in the flesh. And he's done all these wonderful deeds. He's healed people and he's fed people and he's taught people. And yet you find him being reviled. You find him being ultimately executed on a cross. And you're wondering to yourself, why are they killing this? Why are they killing this person? Why is this person claiming to be God in the first place? Why would God have to have to come to earth? What's wrong with earth such that God's got to come and remedy something? But he's executed. And you find yet people believing in him and following him. And some of those people are executed as, as well. And so if you start the Bible at the end or even in the middle, you'll read what happened, but you won't understand why it happened. You'll know what happened, but you will not understand why it happened. And as we, over these next several weeks, look at what the Bible says is going to happen, we want to know why that is going to happen. And in order to know why, you have to begin at the beginning. And so in this very first lesson, we want to see what transpired at the beginning of creation such that the things you read about subsequently in the Bible, the coming of Christ, the things he did, the things that are written about the end of time, will then start to make some sense. Otherwise, you know what happened, but you do not know why it happened. Page one, then. There are two topics of great interest to our modern world. The first is where the world came from. The second is what's going to happen to this world. Between the Big Bang and global warming, people are coming up with all kinds of ideas about what is really happening in the universe that is our home. The Bible teaches these are not really two different topics, but actually related. If we're going to understand the end, we must go back to the beginning to see where it came from and why it's here. And only in that way can we make sense of the world we're living in and understand what God says about where this world is headed. And so let's take a look in this first session at how the Bible's story begins to set it all in context. How things got the way they are. The story of this world begins in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And there we read of God creating the world out of nothing, speaking it into existence by his power. Now, for some of you, that may be difficult for you to believe that this God could, by his word, speak the world into existence, but consider the alternative. Our marvelously and meticulously ordered universe 
with an incredible amount of predictability and all of that coming into existence as a result of random chance with no rational foundation on which to predict that tomorrow is going to be anything like today, which one of those requires more faith? And so the Bible teaches that our world as we know it begins because an intelligent creator has made it. And he has made it with purpose in mind. And if there is no order in at the beginning, then there is no reason to believe there will be anything but chaos at the end. And there's no reason to believe that your life right now has any particular purpose or meaning. And so that second paragraph, when we read about the world that God created, God called that world originally very good. At the end of the sixth day, the Bible says this, God saw all that he had made. Behold, it was very good. He created, in short, a perfect world. But we look around us, we see that, in fact, that has not lasted. Why is that? Many of you know the story, but God placed the first couple in a garden paradise and he gave them but one prohibition. Do not eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We know the third chapter of the Bible that they were tested and they failed that test. They disobeyed God and that had cataclysmic consequences for them, for their descendants and for the environment around them. The bottom of page one says this, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. One of the consequences then is death that is now a natural part of human existence came into being. We were not originally created to die, but sin produced death. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. God said to that first man and first woman, in the very day you eat of this tree that I have prohibited, in that day you will die. Now, if you read the Bible story, you'll see that Adam and Eve actually lived physically a number of years after that. So how is it that God could say, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die? Here's how. The word death, when you read the word death in your Bible, if you read the word separation, you'll have a good understanding of what the Bible is teaching. Death means separation. And there are three kinds of death in the Bible. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the individual from God. And the Bible speaks of a third kind of death, eternal death. And that is the separation of the individual from God forever. And so Adam and Eve died spiritually the very moment that they sinned against their good creator, God. They were separated from him, died spiritually, and as a result, later died physically. All of their now descendants come into the world from the moments of conception, separated from God spiritually and a guarantee of separation from God physically in death as well. But it wasn't just individuals who were affected by the entrance of sin into God's world. The environment, the creation itself was affected. Top of page two. The Bible tells us that all creation was affected by Adam and Eve's sin. Here's what your New Testament says. The creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption 
into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So after Adam and Eve sin, God pronounces curses upon the man, curse upon the woman, a curse upon the serpent. But when he pronounces the curse upon the man, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. And now because of your sin, Adam, the ground is going to bring forth thorns and thistles and difficulty is going to attend your life in this environment that was otherwise perfect. And so the creation itself, the natural world, groans and in upheaval issues volcanoes, earthquakes, and all kinds of natural disasters, all because of the entrance of sin. Now notice that second paragraph on page 2. God evicted them from the garden paradise so that Adam and Eve would not eat from another important tree in that garden. God said, there's this one tree you should not, shall not eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed, they ate of that. But there was another tree the Bible tells us about in the garden called the tree of life. And after they sinned, God banished them from the garden. So important was it that they not have access to this tree called the tree of life that God places to cherubim, to angels with flashing swords, it says so that they cannot have entrance again and somehow get to the tree of life and live forever in this sinful, separated-from-God state. Now, if it ends there, we're in big trouble. But thanks be to God, it does not end there. That God says not only are there these punishments for sin, there not only is there this upheaval in the natural order because of sin, but I'm going to do something about the problem of sin. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, third chapter of your Bible, verse 15, here's what the Bible says. God says, I am going to put, uses the word enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And it says in that verse that he, the seed of the woman, will have his heel stricken by the serpent who will do war against him, enmity. But this one who will come from the seed of the woman will crush the head of this combatant, the serpent. There's going to be one, says God, at the beginning, who's going to be the solution to this problem of sin. He's going to come into the human race through the seed of the woman. And he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, as the Bible story continues, that one who will come as a human being into the human race is identified as Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth is God having come as man, the Bible tells us. And he does what we could not do to remedy the problem that began at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. And this world is going to come to a conclusion with this one, Jesus of Nazareth sitting upon a throne in a new Jerusalem, in a new heaven and in a new earth, so that the kingdom that was to be his at the beginning will be his at the end. The Bible tells us in between how people become participants in that kingdom. And it tells us what will transpire before the beginning and establishment of that kingdom as well. And that's what we're going to look at in the weeks ahead. So the middle of page 2 God then speaks to a fallen world. 
This world has fallen then into sin. It suffers. We individually suffer. The world environmentally suffers. The consequences of that sin. And yet God speaks to this fallen world and speaks a good word to it, we will see before we leave today. God did not forget Adam and Eve. And he has not forgotten us. Even though we live in a fallen and broken world, God has spoken to us through his word, the Bible. Over a period of 1,500 years, God inspired men to communicate his revelation to fellow men. And by the process that the Bible calls inspiration, it literally means God breathed, that the Bible has been breathed out by God, that God is its source. And that's why you will hear me refer to it as God's word, the word of the living God, because it has come to us from him as his message to us. And because of that, we're guaranteed that the Bible is accurate because it came from God for whom it is impossible to lie. Peter, one of the writers of Scripture, walked with Christ on earth, saw all that Jesus did. He tells us that in the Bible we have, quote, a more sure word of prophecy to which we do well to pay attention. So as much as we might like to have seen what Christ did on earth, we have something even better, the Bible itself. Do you understand that? Peter walked with Jesus, and yet he says we have a more sure word of prophecy than even having Jesus in the flesh there. Sometimes people say, man, if I could only, if God would just come and talk to me, then I'd believe him. Well, guess what? God came, and God walked, and God lived, and God talked, and we killed him. God has been here. God will come again, and God has spoken in the pages of his word. And part of that word, the scriptures, the Bible, is what we call, second paragraph, prophecy. That is God telling beforehand what's going, what he's going to do. 25% of the Bible is predictive prophecy. Now, most of us are familiar with the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the 66th book, written around 90 A.D., and it deals with things that are going to happen in the future. And as a result, it's fascinated people for centuries. It talks about the end of the world and all that's going to happen. But prophecy began long before that last book of the Bible. Back in, in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, God began to reveal what he was doing. Very, in fact, that very third chapter that I quoted earlier. There's going to be this enmity, this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And here's what's going to happen, predicts God. He's going to strike the heel of the one who will come, but this one who will come will crush the head of the serpent. The fact that God has spoken to us in this fallen world, given us information about the future, means that we're supposed to be able to understand it. So why did God give that information? Well, let's look at a number of reasons why he did, some reasons why he did not. It was not given to make a lot of money. Now, the Left Behind series is mentioned there, and it's probably unfair, so let me issue an apology, because there's a, lot of, there's a lot of very accurate stuff in the Left Behind series. I'm not a big fiction guy, so that's part of why I say that. I just like the facts, and only the facts. Fiction, I'm not really interested in. But that's just a personal quirk of mine. So I'm sorry for letting my personal quirks come out in being unfair to the Left Behind series. But I will say this, quite apart from that particular series, money and ministry don't mix very well. And making business out of ministry is never a really good idea. 
And we see that, don't we? We see that on television. We see all of the pitfalls that that uh, leads us into. And so it's a very good principle for all of us to bear in mind. God did not give us prophecy, did not give us the truth of his word in general in order for us to make business out of it and make money off of it. Secondly, page three, it was not given to be able to predict the future or set dates for the end of the world. It's difficult to imagine how clearer Jesus could have been than what he says in Mark 13. Of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert. You do not know when the appointed time will come. How much clearer could he possibly be? No one knows, and in case we just don't understand what no one means, we're talking about an angel. We're talking about God the Son himself. But Harold Camping's an exception. I mean, really, how in heaven's name? And yet what Harold Camping says about that verse and what all the other predicting guys, Jack Van Impey, you all know Jack Van Impey's predicted the end of the world as well. Keeps on ticking. Now, this is the second time Camping's been wrong. 1994 he predicted it. I don't know. I have any idea what he's going to say about this one. You know what they did to people who were wrong that predicted stuff in the Bible? Do you know in the Old Testament what they did? They stoned them. They killed them. All in favor? I'm <laughs> uh, let's be kind. But that's why these guys just continue to be wrong. But here's what Herod Camping says about that. He says, well, have you ever heard him? How many, how many have ever heard him? He's got this deep, just creepy sounding voice. He does. So I won't imitate it, though I could. I could. It would be really funny. But he gives this answer that says that no one Jesus was talking to knew the day or the hour. So no one who was standing there listening to Jesus at that time knew the day or the hour. Camping comes along, he knows. But, you know, Jesus throws in angels in heaven to make sure we don't do something like that. But nonetheless, that's his line, and many people believe it, and then many people follow it. Prophecy was not given to predict the future or set dates. Thirdly, it does serve to confirm that what God has said is true. Because we read his word and then we see it come to pass, we can be sure that, what, that God is who he said he was and that his word can be trusted. And Jesus said as much, John 13 and 14. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Jesus said when he was on earth, I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. Now, friends, that's instructive for us. Because God predicted in the first part of your Bible that there would be one who would come through the seed of the woman. And he predicted with amazing accuracy where he would be born, a place called Bethlehem, hundreds of years before that happened. He predicted the time frame in which that would happen. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 in your Bible. He predicted his career and what would happen to him hundreds of years before it occurred. And we are past that 2,000 years now. What God said would happen at the first coming of the Messiah has transpired precisely as he said. Do you know what that means? That means that you can trust 
that what he says is going to happen in the second coming will transpire exactly as he said. And to your own detriment, you ignore what we will see over the next few weeks about what God has promised, this God who has already fulfilled prophecy, prediction after prediction, says is going to happen without fail in the future. So it serves to confirm what God has said to be true. Fourthly, it warns us about the dangers of living in opposition to God, whether intentionally or unintentionally. You have a number of passages here that speak to that. But this God who made the world and this Messiah who has come into the world is going to return to this world. The Bible says he is going to judge it. He's going to judge all of those who continue down the path of our forefather Adam and reject the gift of life that he has provided in Jesus Christ. And he will judge this world. The passages that are listed there warn of that. And so those predictions of what will happen in the end and the fact that there is then nothing after the end, the end is truly that, it's the end. There is not a second chance. There is only then eternity in either heaven or a place that the Bible calls hell. And so to our peril, we ignore those warnings, but they are given indeed for that purpose. Fifthly, bottom of page three, it serves in a positive sense to encourage us while we follow Christ in this life. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. But notice this, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. And so God gives us these predictions to encourage us to look for the time when our Lord will return and we will be with him forevermore. And sixthly and lastly, prophecy serves to motivate us to keep trusting God and living in obedience to God in this life. Let me just say it this way on that sixth point. We live in a fallen world and the fallenness of this world means difficulty, trial, for every one of us, no matter who we are, no matter our station in life, if you're a pastor, if you're a deacon, if you're a member of the church, if this is the first time you've ever set foot in a church, it doesn't matter who you are, you do not escape the consequences of the fallenness of this world. None of us. And every one of us needs the encouragement of knowing that the things that happen to us in this fallen world are not chaotic, They are not outside God's provision and plan. But rather, everything that is happening in my life and in your life is by God's divine appointment. Everything. How do I know that? God made this world. God has told us how this world is going to end. And it can only end exactly as he says if he's controlling what happens in between. Jesus said as much in Matthew chapter 10 verses 29 and 30. Matthew 10, 29 and 30. You all are familiar with verse 30, where Jesus says, the very hairs of your head are numbered. So God knows a lot. Like he's got a big computer brain and he can count the number of hairs on everybody's head. Well, that's amazing in itself. But what Jesus says is even more amazing than that. And here's why. 
because we're familiar with verse 30, the very hairs of your head are numbered, but we sometimes skip the verse right before that, verse 29, where Jesus says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them falls to the ground, except it be by the will of your Father. And the very hairs of your head are numbered. You see, God not only knows how many hairs you have, you have that many hairs because it's God's will. And when, a, when you, in the morning, take the brush and it goes through and there's a bunch of hairs out of there, that's all part of God's will. You can look at it and say, praise God, look at that. God's will. I mean, I am seriously in God's will, man. Yeah. Some people are more in God's will than others. And some people are easier to count than others. Number of hairs as well. But see, God tells us these things to say, I've told you the end from the very beginning. At the beginning, I've told you what's going to happen at the end so that you can have confidence that I'm in control in between with all the stuff that happens in your life. Human history, then, with this God who is in control of it, has a progress to it, a progression to it. Bottom of page four. Human history is not pointless. And so the three big questions of life, who am I, why am I here, and where am I going, can only be answered by understanding what God is doing. And the Bible reveals to us that God has has laid out a progression to human history, time. From the beginning, in the beginning, God created, and God created time. There was only eternity, God created time. And there will be an end to human history, there will be an end to time, and there will be eternity future. And in between, there is a progression of what God is doing in the history, His story of humanity in time. And that progression is given to you on pages 4 and 5. And you notice the words in bold there? Those words in bold tell you that God has laid out seven stages of history, bottom of page 4. The first stage was what we call the innocent stage. That's the garden. No sin. But then there was man being ruled by his conscience for a period of time. After which, God instituted human government in Genesis chapter 9 to rule the affairs of men. So you have these three stages in the early chapters of the Bible. You have innocence and conscience and you have civil government. If you look at the top of page 5, God then gave promises to the patriarchs. Most significantly, a man named Abraham. And then later came Moses, through whom he gave the law. And now the Bible tells us in the New Testament, we're in that progression of human history that's called the age of of grace, sometimes called the age of the church. And so you have six of seven stages in human history, all moving toward a progression to the very climax, the end, and the seventh of those stages listed for you on page five, the kingdom. It will all culminate in the kingdom. And so the Bible has given these seven stages, and we are in the sixth of those seven stages. The next thing to happen on God's timetable is for him to remove his church and the church age and to usher in then something called the Great Tribulation, followed by the final battle of Armageddon, followed by the establishment of his thousand-year kingdom, followed by the eternal state and a new heaven and a new earth. We'll see all of that together over the next few weeks. Now, how does Israel fit into all of this? We all know 
that the Middle East, particularly Israel, is a hot spot for the world today. But why is that so? Well, that is so because of what you see on pages 5 and 6. Bottom of page 5, you see Genesis chapter 12. And when God made these promises to the fathers or the patriarchs, significantly Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that's listed for you there. He makes these promises unconditionally to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a seed that cannot be numbered. And I'm going to take, settle you into a land that I am going to show you that will ultimately be your possession forever. And God says, I, Abraham, am going to do this over and over again. In that passage, bottom of page 5, it's all God and God's faithfulness that determines that this is going to happen. But then notice page 6. God reiterates this with regard to his descendants and with regard to the land. In Genesis 15, he took Abraham outside and said, Now look toward the heavens, count the stars if you're able to, so shall your descendants be, Abraham. And then he tells them about this land. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, you all know a river in Egypt? You know one river in Egypt, don't you? So from the Nile to the Euphrates. Now, you just, you just pull out a map and you see how much land that is. And guess what? Those guys have never had that land as yet. God has promised that land on his faithfulness, and they will possess that land. Right now, they possess a sliver of land along the Mediterranean, surrounded by hostile, na- surrounded by hostile nations. Prior to the 1967 Six-Day War, there were portions of that sliver of land called Israel that were nine, only nine miles wide. When you hear in the news media about trading land for peace, (laughs) dude, I just got a backyard or something. What do you want? Our president just gave a speech this past week which said an agreement with the Palestinians is conditioned upon going back to the pre-1967 borders. That includes nine miles wide. So it is indeed a hot spot. And they will possess the land because it is not based upon their goodness or their obedience, but upon God's promise. And God keeps his promises. And so this will happen, and that's the reason that it is such a hot spot. And you find these two agreements, contracts, covenants that God made with his people, one through Abraham, one through Moses. And they're both highlighted in these two paragraphs in the middle of page 6. Exodus chapter 20, the law is given through Moses. And you read about that law in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And here's what's important about the agreement that God made with Moses for the people of Israel, the Jews. It is a conditional covenant. The covenant that God made through Moses is conditional, meaning this. The blessings that God promises in that agreement are conditioned upon obedience. If you're not obedient, you don't get the blessings. That's what God says. The blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are unconditional. 
God never places any conditions upon your seed is going to be as numerous as the stars. You are going to possess this land. It's not based upon how good they are or whether or not they're even obedient. It's based upon the faithfulness of the promise of God. And so it will happen. So what is God doing now then in our final moments? Simply put, God is patiently awaiting his chosen time that none of us know for the return of Jesus. Second Peter 3.15 calls this time a time of God's patience to bring people to salvation through Jesus Christ so that they can have eternal life in heaven and escape the eternal punishment of hell. And so that passage says, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. And so right now, though this time, through this time of seeming delay, God is building His church, the group of people who've turned from their sin and their own self-sufficiency and they've trusted in Christ Jesus alone for salvation from sin. And God is now calling out a people for Himself that the book of Revelation says is from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So why should we care about the stuff that's going to happen in the end and the things that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. Page 7. We may say, surely whatever happens is just going to happen, so why should I care about it? Well, because God has, has told us about it. Anything God has told us about, one, we should care about. But secondly, the fact that God is having all of these things happen just as He has said. He has already fulfilled numerous prof- predictions in Scripture just as He said. Then give us confidence even in the midst of the chaos that is our private lives and is our world. And so we are going to see what you see in the list there and in the chart on page 7 over these next few weeks. The rapture, what that is. The tribulation that will follow the rapture. The second coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation. The millennium, also known as the thousand-year kingdom. The final judgment. We'll also see the battle of Armageddon as well that's listed in the chart at the bottom of page 7. So in conclusion... You all remember the tree of life that we started out with? Two special trees in the garden. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but also the tree of life from which Adam and Eve were banished. The book of Revelation, that last book of your Bible, it speaks of this tree of life again. We have listed for you there on page 8 what it says, but it says and invites all to come and drink of the tree of eat of the tree of life freely by the river of life. Now, those who are going to be able to eat of that tree of life freely in the future are those who have come to God through Jesus Christ in the patience that he is exhibiting toward fallen sinners like us in the here and now. In my final comments, I'll be done in two minutes, so stay with me. But we quoted 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, and it said there, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Second Peter chapter 3, I encourage you to read that passage because here's what it says. It says, just as it was in the time of Noah and people scoffed and they said, where is this flood that Noah is talking about? And then destruction came. Just as there were scoffers then, there are scoffers now, Peter says in Second Peter chapter 3. People who say, where is this coming that he has promised? It's been delayed, but they deliberately forget and then... Peter goes on to recount what happened with Noah and the flood. And then he says this, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. 
The reason God delays is this. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason that God delays is not because it ain't going to happen. It's going to happen. You should regard his delay, his patience, as time for your salvation because God is not willing that any would perish at the end, but that all would come to repentance. And he offers that to you now. And so, friends, I encourage you to consider the promise of Almighty God who is in control of human history and is bringing it to its appointed end at his appointed time to use his patience now for you to come to repentance. What does that mean? It means repentance literally means a change of mind that leads to a change of life. You change your mind about who you are, about who God is. Now, who are you? You're a sinner like me. And who is God? He's your only Savior. He's the only one who can rescue you from the wrath to come. So you change your mind. You see yourself as God says you are. You have sinned against him. And you will suffer the consequences of that sin if you do not avail yourself of the rescue that he provides in the Lord Jesus. How do you avail yourself of that? (laughs) It's a free gift that you receive from him by asking. You say to him in your own words, we're going to bow in just a moment, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that that punishment belongs to me. But I believe Jesus took the punishment that I deserve. He's paid it in full for you. Lord, I ask you to save me. Here's what the Bible says. He or she who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this time to look at this important issue of what you have said about your work in your world, bringing it to its appointed end on your time scale. You have shown us in millennia past now, in human history, your work in your world, bringing about, precisely as you have said, the predictions that you have laid out in Holy Scripture. Most significantly, the coming of the Messiah, the promised one, the seed of the woman, who's crushed the head of the serpent on the cross, And is coming again to receive to himself those who have received his free offer of salvation in this time of your patience. You will judge this fallen world as well. So, Lord, help us to see that what you have said has come true, what you have said will come true. And I pray that that will motivate us to, one, trust you completely with the details of our lives, and that it will motivate some who are hearing that message, perhaps for the first time, to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their refuge, as their deliverer, as their salvation. I pray that right now there are some who are calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. Help them to see the the patience that you are exhibiting in delaying the time when you will come in order for them to come into your kingdom, into the future. You are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Oh, Lord Jesus, make it so in the lives of these dear friends. And go with us this week as we seek to serve you. We ask you to grant us safety and the ability to come back and hear from your word next week. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.